and so I think one of the barriers as a medical student or as, as, as a clinician coming into this space is how can you champion within your organization the, the moral approach to why we are here delivering this care and bringing the dignity and the respect to patients that are not just overlooked, they're actively discriminated against. And so I think there's really a role for that being at the front of us being participating in a system that demonstrates that it cares for all of its patients, particularly those that are most vulnerable and most often overlooked or ignored. That was Barbara DiPietro, Senior Director of Policy at the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. In this episode of Making the Rounds, Rutgers medical student Shad Yassin interviews Barbara DiPietro and two other experts, David Woody, president and CEO of the Bridge Homeless Recovery Center in Dallas, Texas, and Dr. David Munson, medical director at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program in Boston, Massachusetts. They talk about how these life-saving programs improve health while protecting our healthcare system and how medical students can make an impact. This virtual panel was part of the AMA's 2022 annual meeting. If you're a resident or medical student, you can get access to even more great events like this one by becoming an AMA member. Visit ama-assn.org slash movingmedicine. First of all, thank you all for joining us so much. Um, today, we're gonna just start off really quickly uh, with you, Dr. D. Pistro. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about just what are medical respite care programs? Sure. Uh, medical respite programs are post-acute venues for people experiencing homelessness who no longer need to be in the hospital, but don't have a place to rest and recuperate uh, like you and I would. So medical respite programs are uh, offer a residential component for short-term healing uh, after a hospitalization for those who don't need a higher level of care like skilled nursing. Great. Um, Dr. David Woody, can you tell us a little bit about... Um how these programs are managed, how, are they, how do they work? What, what exactly are the, the sort of workings, inner workings of these programs? Sure. Dr. DiPietro was able to really describe kind of the um, overall kind of desire, kind of purpose of them. What I think goes along with them is, especially in respect to uh, working with homeless individuals is the ability to have a combination of access to services, right? Uh, individuals who um, are comfortable working with the homeless, but also that there is kind of some internal workings. How is it that a uh, homeless citizen can get appropriate um, assessment, get their medical needs addressed, and then in terms of the aftercare, the respite care kind of experience, how is it that, what kind of model is in place to ensure that um, that patient's needs are addressed, that they're addressed in a situation that is not like a medical facility? And how is it that both uh, employees of that facility and the uh, homeless individual, that they're both on the same page in terms of the specific needs that are needing to be addressed? Shad, can I just highlight one thing that um, Dr. Woody said, which I think is so important in respite programs is the, the sort of the patient centeredness of the program. So I think so, so often our, our, our patients are, you know, they really struggle interacting with the larger healthcare system in part because of stigma and the fact that, um, you know, a lot of medical training doesn't involve 
taking care of homeless people. And so folks don't realize, don't appreciate um, the trauma that patients have experienced and things like that. And so they don't bring that into the care, not intentionally, but they don't bring that into the care that they, they provide as, as residents or, 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 or later on in training. And so respite programs are beautiful in that they are, the care is provided by people that are really passionate and interested in understand this work. And so the, you can create an environment in which folks who don't, who aren't comfortable in hospitals, who leave against, you know, have unplanned discharges all the time from hospitals, really settle in and feel comfortable um, in a medical respite program. And that's really a, a neat aspect of these sorts of programs. So Dr. Munson, can you tell us a little bit more about what types of models exist um, around medical respite? There's a lot of different models that exist around this type of program. So what, how can they... Yeah, um, I think, you know, there's, I think the, 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 the council, the National Healthcare of the Homeless Council and the, the Medical Respite Network has defined a couple, you know, four, four types of models, the coordinated care model, the coordinated clinical care model, the integrated clinical care model, and the comprehensive clinical care model. But the thing that I would say is that respite programs are sort of designed to meet the needs of the communities in which they exist. Um, and so they have varying levels of clinical care and how intensive the clinical care is or how intensive the case management services or care management services might be. There's sort of a whole spectrum um, from you know, very intensive sort of daily nursing visits um, that are provided you know, by the same say community health center that runs the respite program to maybe once a week or you know, every other day um, visiting nurse services that, that are provided. So there's a whole spectrum and it's based on what the community needs are and often what, you know, payers, whether that be health insurers or state governments are, are willing to recognize. And so um, there can be a wide variety of services that, that, you know, that, that are provided. There are some standards that we sort of recognize as kind of like what the baseline are for all programs in terms of transportation and um, some clinical access, some food, um, those sorts of things, access to a bed. Um, but the intensity of clinical services um, really varies from, from location to location. Great. And in terms of like the types of programs that exist, are there large advantages to one specific type uh, or disadvantages to different types? I'm not sure what um, David or Barbara think, but I really think that it's base. It's really what the community needs are, and so the needs that we I, I, I practice in Boston, um, we have a very clinically intensive model in Boston. That's kind of just the way Boston's a very clinically intensive place. Hospitals everywhere. Um, that's kind of what Boston seems to need. But there's other communities that may not may not need that, and so the rest of programs look quite different. But Barbara and David, I'm curious what you guys think about that. I know here in Dallas. Um, there is a basically like in many communities kind of a uh, hospital row kind of thing. But unfortunately, there is not um, the access, right, to the resources uh, that many homeless individuals need. The challenge in some of those institutions is though that there are homeless individuals who will try to use hospital emergency rooms for shelter, right? And that too often, um, there may not be as uh, robust a uh, communication strategy between hospitals and our local sheltering system to ensure that the respite needs for a homeless citizen, once they have gotten their 
priority medical needs taken care of, that there's not a good communication system in place. I know here at the shelter that we have uh, Parkland Hospital, which is the uh, county hospital for the indigent here in Dallas, we have a clinic of theirs right on our campus. And so that gives us access to the kinds of uh, respite resources that a citizen who may be leaving the hospital, they kind of have those kind of access to those kind of resources here. But even here within our situation, we I would say that we don't have kind of the ideal communication strategy to be feel fully comfortable with the timing and the responsiveness in terms of medical needs that I guess would have. So our care management team, our team of social workers are really critical to ensuring that a guest needs are taken care of. And Chad, I would follow up that by saying that I think every community needs a medical respite program simply because every community has people experiencing homelessness. Um, that said, you are also in every community going to have people who are homeless have got pretty, very significant clinical needs. And so I would argue that every community could support various models of medical respite um, service. Uh, and to that point, even uh, where Dave is in, in Boston, they have different types of models of medical respite programs to meet different levels of need. Uh, at the same time, most communities just don't have the partnerships yet in place to support multiple levels of medical respite. So I think right now it's a lot of what can you cobble together as a program given the financing and the partnership that you have at the table to do the best you can. And unfortunately, I think when it comes to um, homeless healthcare, doing the best you can is generally the best you can. That makes a lot of sense. Um... Dr. Munson, you mentioned payers uh, when you were talking about um, how medical respite programs may be financed. Dr. DiPietro, can you tell us a little more about how these programs are financed? Are they federal dollars, state dollars? Where does the money come from? Sure. Um, so this is always the, the $10 million question, right? Uh, how does it get paid? Uh, I will say the good news here is that healthcare systems are increasingly looking at interventions that address social determinants of health. So 10 years ago, even five years ago, I would say that we were in a really different space with regard to financing. And so now you have more managed care plans, you have more state Medicaid systems, you have hospitals, uh, you have uh, community homeless systems, uh, homelessness services providers, who are all looking to either on their own or together with partners, uh, come together and finance medical respite. So we're seeing increasingly Medicaid payments and reimbursements on a per diem level. Uh, we're seeing uh, more and more hospital grants uh, given to programs so that they've got a safe discharge plan. You've got homelessness services programs that can use HUD dollars uh, for services and for beds. And often people will be using multiple um, funding streams to be able to put together. Someone pays for the bed, others pay for the staff as, staffing and services. Others might be able to uh, cover food or housekeeping or security. So there's different elements that need to come together. Uh, again, I think the real key for an individual community is thinking through who are your partners that you've got available and what funding can they bring to this conversation? So what uh, what Dave is able to do in Boston will be very different than what Dr. Woody can do um, in, in, in Texas. For example, in particular, a state that has not expanded Medicaid to single adults. So what Dave is able to build a Medicaid pretty pervasively in his program is not gonna be available to you, Dr. Woody. So I think that's obviously a, another uh, issue that we can talk about for a long time. Uh, but I, I think uh, the financing here, I think we have never been in a more promising space 
because you've got healthcare leaders right now that are saying home, housing is healthcare and the residential component that comes with medical respite is often that stepping stone to a more permanent housing placement. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. So given that some of the dollars might come from Medicaid, uh, does that mean that um, a patient coming in uh, who's uninsured would have a different experience than a patient coming in who is insured? I would argue that a well-run respite program, that patient will not see any difference in the care that they receive based on their insurance status. I think that's for us on the administration is to make sure that that's transparent to the client. Uh, however, you will always will have people who, for whatever reason, and it may be that they are insured, but perhaps the uh, if Dave's working in a, in a reimbursement model, for example, maybe the plan for some reason refused to approve medical respite. So you're not so, you know, you might not be getting paid for that day for that patient, for example. Uh, this is on us as administrators to make sure that we financed the program in a way that allows for us to serve the population without regard to insurance status. Uh, now, putting that together with regard to insurance mixed and cost obviously is, you know, financially solvent. Um, but again, that's the challenge, right? That's that's the challenge to making it work. Just to sort of highlight that we didn't really say this explicitly, but, you know, medical respite is not recognized by Medicare as a as a billable entity. And so you end up with this sort of hodge. It's not like a colonoscopy, for example, you know, where there's a, a set price and, you know, you sort of different plans kind of figure out what they're going to reimburse. But so you end up with this sort of patchwork of um, reimbursement models, right? Depending on the location, or maybe you have a relationship with a hospital here that's different than there, or so it really sort of trickles down to the complete individual level, which is good on some levels, but it's challenging on other levels in terms of having, um, sort of um, a standard of recognition and a standard of compensation for the work that's being done. And if I could, again, uh, mention too, I think where insurance status is really important, particularly clinically, and for medical, medical um, students who are listening to this, your care options are often gonna be dictated by your client's insurance status. And so what insulins you have access to may even depend on the specific formulary of the managed care plan that your client is on. And so whether they're on one plan or another might dictate what medications that you're able, that are covered in that plan that you're able to prescribe. And so I think this is where, again, I'd love to have another conversation completely about how we need to have a healthcare system that responds to you as clinicians. But I think often that's where your insurance it's gonna make a difference is the care plan that you're able to put together and what your client is gonna have access to and what's covered in terms of medications or, or treatments. That's definitely a much larger conversation to have. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Dr. Woody, I did have a question about um, the community resources. You had mentioned that um, the community in Dallas specifically was working with uh, people experiencing homelessness. 
you all work with Parkland Hospital. And I'm wondering uh, what other sort of community resources uh, are integrated into these programs and how do community, community resources get integrated into these programs uh, for medical respite? Well, for me, I think um, certainly advocacy is a huge part of the work. Um, here in Dallas, just structurally, um, we have a significantly higher percentage of the homeless population that is African-American that may be seen across the United States. I mean, here at our center, 65% of our guests are African-American, okay? And a lot of the reason why folks come to us is because of a lack of access to the critical resources that would prevent homelessness. They don't have access to those things in their communities, communities that they come from here in Dallas. Uh, poverty rate here is nearly 26% across um, the city of Dallas County. And so um, when folks come to the bridge, they have free access to basically all of these resources that most folks are, were craving um, over a significant period of time and uh, contributed to their homelessness. And so we continue to um, advocate uh, for access to the resources. And one of the things in our model here is that we try to have all of those resources right here on the campus. We even have um, representatives from the VA for example, okay, who are right here on the campus. Uh, there may be um, um, a service member or previous service member who feels some kind of way about their service um, that they um, were part of. And so to have two caseworkers available to kind of bridge the gap here and to connect those folks with the resources that the VA has available to them at the um, local um, VA hospital here in Dallas, and that we can provide transportation to them for their resource needs, physical health, mental health needs there, and then transportation for them to come back here for night shelter respite is really important. And again, to have um, uh, care managers, we call our caseworkers here, care managers who, are, who have crafted a, a plan, care and housing plan with folks that prioritizes the kind of needs that they didn't have access to in their local community trying to get those issues taken care of here and ultimately uh, craft a opportunity for them to acquire an affordable or workforce housing solution for them, that's really important. And ultimately, that's what I think all of the respite care programs are about. Who is it that's kind of orchestrate, right, and prioritize with, in relationship with that homeless citizen who is involved in doing that and to have a uh, purpose in a respite program that is about um, as Dr. Munson said, you know, putting the client client centric experience first, right, and is engaging, understanding, crafting a relationship that then allows them with the, the uh, homeless client to prioritize what their needs are. That's really important. And I think that's one of the essential aspects of the various types of medical respite care models that's out there. I think we've created a very clear argument for how Medical respite, respite care programs are extremely useful for, for our clients, um, but unfortunately, we don't see them in every community. And Dr. DiPietro, you mentioned that, that you think that every community could benefit from a medical respite program. Um, Dr. Munson, could you tell us a little bit about sort of the barriers that exist to preventing uh, these programs from being integrated into the community in the first place? Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, there's a, there's a lot of places to start. We, we could think about, you know, some of the financial barriers just as a place to linking to the conversation we had before. I mean, the lack of 
you know, universal health insurance in the United States and the fact that there's not a clear mechanism to pay for these things, these types of programs um, is, is one where you have just some communities where there's just no infrastructure, the, the programs, the healthcare for the homeless programs or the shelter programs, they want to do this, but the funding is just, just not there. Um, also, I think sometimes, uh, you know, some of these building, some of these programs require buildings and infrastructure and that costs money. Um, and you have to ha have those buildings or you have to create space. Maybe you have to, maybe you have a shelter that's already bursting at the seams. And then the question is, do we carve out some space in the shelter? And so, so those are some challenges. And then, you know, I think staff that, you know, these, there's a lot of burnout amongst, um, you know, service providers right now. Um, you know, respite was amazing during COVID, I think, and sort of showed a lot of like what COVID can, what respite can do COVID, but COVID has burned a lot of people out. And so now to ask people to, you know, work in a role where maybe they're working overnight or they're, you know, there's some issues that come up with, um, you know, sort of some, some of the residential type aspect of um, respite care that, that could be a barrier, but those are just some ideas. I, I'd be curious for Barbara and, and David, what your thoughts are on that. I would certainly say uh, one of the biggest structural barriers is just stigma against people who are homeless. Uh, and so uh, when you think about asking your hospital, your health center, uh, other partners in the community to put time, resources, and staff toward addressing a medical need of people experiencing homelessness, you will be told at least 12 different reasons why this isn't a population that's worth your time. Uh, or our money, or our resources, or, or, or. And I think one of the biggest things, and there's a lot that gets wrapped into stigma too. There's racism that goes into that and not deeming a population worthy of appropriate care. Uh, and there's lots of things that we can point to uh, that have created homelessness to begin with through those same racist or structural barriers um, that are put in place of a deserving versus an undeserving population. And so I think one of the barriers as a medical student or as, as, as a clinician coming into this space is how can you champion within your organization uh, the, moral, uh, uh, the, the moral approach to why we are here delivering this care and bringing the dignity and the respect to patients that are not just overlooked, they're actively discriminated against. And so I think there's really a role for that being at the front of us being participating in a system that demonstrates that it cares for all of its patients, um, particularly those that are most vulnerable and most often overlooked or ignored. I would add to that that, you know, again, in this country to be able to ask for help is is taboo. Right. And so and that, you know, is this stream in terms of how it is that. Uh, folks, especially folks with leverage, folks with power, decision makers um, can minimize the significance of the homeless experience. You know, um, I know in our community, having the political will, for example, right, to commit resources, right, to uh, organizations who are collaborating, who are prioritizing the physical health and mental health needs of uh, individuals experiencing homelessness um, has been an incredible challenge. And so a large body of the work going on here at the bridge is about educating the community, um, talking about, as Dr. Pietro said, uh, dignity and worth or worthiness for the resources. 
Um, and ultimately, that if a uh, individual experiencing homelessness is not in a good place in terms of their physical health, their ability to manage or sustain housing, that's going to be terribly compromised. So that folks have to be working together in terms of this outcome. I think those are all incredible points. And I want to bring us to a close with our um, with our final question. Medical students, they're advocates. They're going to be entering clinical spaces. They're going to be entering policy spaces within the AMA and within their local communities. What advice do you have for them about getting into the space of medical respite care? And whether that be just the student who is working on a discharge for their patient, or whether that's a student creating programs in their community. Uh, Dr. DiPietro, can I start with you? I would say that the number one thing you can do is um, use your privilege and use your credibility to the utmost. Um, particularly as uh, new doctors coming in, people will listen to you um, in a way that they might not listen to others. Um, raising these issues, um, particularly because you are new, newer in the field. Uh, and and uh, we, we talk a lot about how older, um, older clinicians are burned out and they're tired and having new fresh eyes and new fresh spirit come into a department and say, this is important. These patients are important and we can be delivering better care. We need your, your spirit. We need your energy. We need your vision. And above all, we need a value structure in medicine that really pushes the boundaries of where all of these blind spots have been created consciously and they consciously need to be pulled down as well. So having just new people in this space is really welcome and needed. Having individuals who are enthusiastic, uh, having individuals who really, as Dr. Pietro says, you know, who are really committed to this, um, um, probably one of the major challenges, It's again, it's one thing to have um, knowledge and skills and uh, comfort, uh, confidence in the medical aspect, but also thinking about how is it that I engage a homeless citizen, right? How do I talk to that person, right? Um, there are some great uh, evidence-based models, for example, trauma-informed care. There are some very specific techniques and skills that a medical student can layer on top of that knowledge that um, will facilitate your connecting uh, with an individual experiencing homelessness and engaging them in uh, building a care plan. And I think things go much better when you see your patient, right, actively involved in understanding what's going on and understanding how is it that they could own part of their healing experience. All, all I would maybe add, um, those are tough acts to follow, but I would say as a student, you know, learn who's providing the care for homeless people in your community. Like learn, somebody's doing it. Somebody's doing it on some level. So ask around and then go out and spend some time with those people, shadow with them and see what it's like to care for somebody after a discharge from a hospital when they're on 12 medicines and they return to the shelter and they still have a wound, you know? Um, hang out on the street, you know, to take, so spend some time with providers and people experiencing homelessness with medical issues in the community um, so that you understand what the need is and then go back. And as Barbara said, you have a lot more privilege and power than you even recognize you do. Those, 
the, the letters after your name are going to open a lot of doors. So use that experience to advocate for what you sort of what, what's needed. Thank you all so much for your incredible responses. Um, thank you to the AMA staff for all of your hard work on this. And uh, thank you to my committee, uh, the Committee on Legislation and Advocacy. Have a good day, everybody. You can subscribe to Making the Rounds and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.